Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. West 72nd Street meets Central Park West on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. The Dakota is known as the most famous apartment block in New York City. It was built in 1884 with its high gables and deep roofs. It's an unusual hybrid of German Renaissance and Gothic Revival architecture. Its designers intended for it to be the first luxury accommodation of its kind, hoping to attract the city's elite. After all, at the end of the 19th century, apartment living was largely looked down on by the upper classes. Maybe the Dakota would change their minds. Famous residents included Hollywood heavyweight Judy Garland and famed composer Leonard Bernstein. But there is one resident, a musician, who immortalized the Dakota. His name is John Lennon. In 1980, the former Beatle is living at the Dakota, sharing an expansive apartment with his wife and collaborator, Yoko Ono, and their son, Sean. It has been a decade since the release of the Beatles' last album, Let It Be. And Lennon has spent the intervening years writing and releasing solo material, collaborating with artists like David Bowie, and engaging in political activism as an outspoken critic of the Vietnam War. On the afternoon of December the 8th, after a photo shoot for Rolling Stone magazine, John and Yoko step out of the building. They're on their way to the record plant, a recording studio, where they'll continue to work on Yoko's next song. As the couple walk towards their waiting limousine, a heavy-set man in his mid-twenties walks up to them. Wordlessly, he holds out a copy of Double Fantasy, John and Yoko's fifth album. The man indicates for John to sign it. Taking the man's pen, he obliges, though he struggles to get the ink flowing, scribbling three times before successfully producing a signature that reads, John Lennon, 1980. Lennon hands the album and pen back to the now smiling man. Is that all? He says. The man nods his head. The moment between Lennon and the fan is captured by an amateur photographer. The image sees Lennon in a knitted jumper, a black bomber jacket and sporting dark glasses. 
To his right, wearing a dark coat and a grey scarf, the fan looks on. His expression, a mixture of wonder and satisfaction. John and Yoko climb into the back of their waiting limousine and are driven away, turning left onto Columbus Avenue in the direction of the studio. Less than six hours later, the fan and Lennon will cross paths again. This time, it will leave Lennon with four bullets in his back. From What's the Story Sounds, you're listening to Crosshairs. In each episode, you'll be immersed in some of the most significant and shocking assassination attempts and successes in human history. From meticulously planned hits to killings gone wrong and the moments in time which led to murder. So train your ears and listen as we walk you towards the moment where victim and assassin collide. This is Crosshairs, Episode 1, John Lennon. Mark David Chapman was born in Fort Worth, Texas, a city better known for its ranch hands and rodeo drives than anything else. The place was established as an army outpost in 1849. But by the time of Mark's birth in 1955, Fort Worth was the fifth largest city in the state, with a population of just over a quarter of a million people. Mark's father, David, was an Air Force sergeant who later qualified as an electrical engineer. His mother, Diane, was a nurse who worked the night shift at the local hospital. And Mark, well, he was a sociable child. He made friends readily. He collected coins, built mail-order rockets in his back garden, and even set up a business in his parents' garage, where he would oil and wash bicycles for 50 cents a pop. He loved music, too and became a Beatles devotee from the day his father bought a copy of their 1964 album, Meet the Beatles. At just 14 years old, Mark was obsessed by the tail end of 60s counterculture, and he lived like his life depended on it. He experimented with drugs, grew out his hair, stopped washing, and started skipping school. Nothing was off limits, from lighter fluid to heroin. And with few boundaries and a newfound sense of freedom, Mark embraced this new world as if he'd known nothing else. His parents were at a loss. Their kind, well-mannered son, who only a few years earlier had been given an award for three years of perfect attendance at Sunday school, had transformed before their eyes into a drug-taking, anti-establishment dropout. At one point, Mark even ran away to live on the streets of Atlanta. He was there for two weeks before a bad LSD trip landed him in jail. Watching his father cry while having to bail him out, Mark Chapman knew things had to change. Over 800 miles away, the Big Apple was welcoming its newest resident. 
When John Lennon moved to New York City in 1971, it signified the start of a new phase in his career. After 21 studio albums, thousands of live performances, and millions of records sold with the Beatles, it was perhaps inevitable that Lennon needed a change. He'd grown up in Liverpool and had gone on to conquer the world. But that fame and glory had come at a cost. And in the last few years, those costs had become too much to bear. First, the band's manager, Brian Epstein, had overdosed on sleeping pills. And his death was the beginning of the end for the Fab Four. It was Lennon who had introduced Brian to pills, and his death devastated the musician. Six months after Epstein's funeral, which the band decided not to attend for fear they'd cause a scene, the Beatles found themselves in India. Surrounded by heat and birdsong, they listened as an Indian yoga guru tried to teach them the art of transcendental meditation. John and his bandmate George Harrison were advocates, but Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr were less keen. Cracks in their relationship were beginning to show. This was the trip where the band wrote much of their iconic White Album. But the meditation did nothing to calm the tension which was developing between them. The band had launched a new business venture and were hemorrhaging money. Their guiding light, Epstein, was no longer by their side. And in the eyes of many, the band was reaching the end of its musical journey. By the time the band came together in December 1968 to record what would be their final studio release, Let It Be, the group was at complete loggerheads. By April 1970, the Beatles would be no more. The lion's share of the blame for the Beatles split was laid at the feet of one woman, Yoko Ono. In fact, even John Lennon said so. In an iconic interview with Rolling Stone magazine the same year as the band split, Lennon said, I had to either be married to them or Yoko, and I chose Yoko. Yoko was a Japanese artist and musician who had made waves in New York City in the early 1960s as part of the avant-garde art scene. The pair had met for the first time in 1966 at the Indica Gallery in London, where Yoko was preparing an exhibition. The two hit it off immediately and began exchanging letters. Though both were married at the time, their infatuation with one another grew, and it wasn't long before they were together. Yoko accompanied John everywhere, even to the recording sessions with the band which had previously been a strict no-wives-or-girlfriend zone. As the Beatles approached their endgame, Lennon's attention was divided. He had already been recording and releasing music with Yoko for a few years. Mixed success. Their 1968 record, Unfinished Music No. 1, Two Virgins, was perhaps better remembered for its audacious cover, which featured a new John and Yoko than its content. A shipment containing 30,000 copies of that album was seized, with officials deeming it obscene. Hitting the shelves wrapped in brown paper to cover up its creator's genitals, the album barely made a splash in the UK, where it sold just 5,000 copies. 
John and Yoko were by now using heroin. Lennon had become withdrawn and unpredictable, his relationship with his bandmates souring. And in September 1969, Lennon made a heartbreaking announcement. He told his bandmates he was leaving the group for good. Lennon needed to distance himself from the UK. He wanted to protect his wife from the British press, who were only too happy to lay the blame for the Beatles' demise on her shoulders. So in 1971, he crossed the Atlantic to start over in the big smoke, the Big Apple, New York City. Back in Texas, 16-year-old Mark David Chapman was going through a transformation of his own. He had found God and was now a born-again Presbyterian. He'd begun distributing religious literature to anyone who'd give him the time of day. Sometimes he'd even knock on the doors of his neighbors and enthusiastically try to convert them. And he worked with an evangelical humanitarian aid organization helping Vietnamese refugees. His parents, once aghast at his turn into a dope-smoking dropout, now marveled at his resurrection. But while Chapman was impressing with his commitment to a higher being, things were not so rosy on the academic front. He'd enrolled in Covenant College, a conservative Presbyterian school, but was plagued with bouts of anxiety and depression. He spoke with his then-girlfriend Jessica about his anxieties around sex and how they were forever at odds with his fervent fundamentalism. He started having suicidal thoughts and ended up dropping out after his first semester. He had traded one addiction for another, swapping hardcore drugs for the gospel. But his new obsession was no more stable. Chapman was no happier, and his life was falling apart at the seams. At a loose end, he took a security job, manning a metal detector in Atlanta Airport. Later, he passed his shooting range test and became an armed guard at a hospital. He moved to Hawaii, but despite the picture-perfect surroundings, Mark was spiraling. No matter what he changed in his life, his demons stayed the same. One day he rented a car and drove out to a remote part of Hawaii Island. He parked up and took in the view, the sea, the lush greenery. Then he fitted a hose to the exhaust, climbed back into the driver's seat, closed his eyes and waited to die. He was awoken a short while later by a rapping on his window. Opening his eyes, Chapman was greeted by the unexpected sight of a concerned Japanese fisherman. He got out of his car and examined the hose. There was a hole in it. The heat of the exhaust had burnt through the thin rubber. He couldn't even do that right. 24 hours later, Judy Herzog, a psychiatric social worker found Mark sitting outside her office with the burned hose in his lap. 
The mid-70s would prove to be a tumultuous period for John and Yoko too. The couple, who had been living in an airy loft on Bank Street in Greenwich Village, moved into the Dakota in 1973. Their loft had been burgled and they wanted somewhere with better security. After being approved by the Dakota's infamously choosy board, they bought an apartment on the seventh floor from the actor Robert Ryan. The Dakota now had a new celebrity resident. John and Yoko's carefree existence in the Dakota was soon interrupted by a period Lennon would refer to as his lost weekend, a reference to the Billy Wilder film of the same name. Lennon went on an alcoholic bender, and that bender led to Lennon and Yoko separating. To everyone's surprise, Lennon disappeared to the bright lights of L.A. with a woman called May Pang, who had worked for the couple as an assistant. They spent a fast 18 months together. Lennon was drinking more than ever, and his behavior was becoming more and more extreme. On one occasion, in the early hours of the morning, he was ejected from the Troubadour, a famous music venue in West Hollywood, after sticking a menstrual pad to his forehead and getting into a fight with the waitress. Two weeks later, after downing several rounds of Barry Alexander's, a potent cocktail of brandy, cream, and chocolate liqueur, Lennon was kicked out of the same venue for heckling a comedy act and allegedly slapping a female photographer. But despite their separation and John's new relationship, he remained in constant contact with Yoko Ono. She wanted to control the public perception of their split from afar. At first, she demanded that Mei Pang kept her relationship with John a secret. And when inevitably the press caught wind of the new couple, Yoko called and issued instructions. She would not be humiliated or a victim. And she insisted that May and John tell the press that it was Yoko who had thrown John out of the Dakota apartment. In 1974, John returned to New York, initially with May, the two staying at the glossy Pierre Hotel on Fifth Avenue. In November, he performed at Madison Square Gardens with Elton John. During a break in the show, as he walked to his dressing room, a young delivery boy handed him a bunch of gardenias. He knew immediately who they were from. Gardenias were Yoko's favorite flower. He plucked the most beautiful one from the bunch and tucked it into his lapel. When he emerged on stage again, photographers noted the addition. And after the show, the flashbulbs went wild as John and Yoko were spotted, reunited, holding hands. It wasn't long before Yoko was pregnant. And on John's birthday, October the 9th, she gave birth to their son, Sean. Looking at his beautiful newborn son and with no sense of irony given his drug habit, John said he felt higher than the Empire State Building. After his suicide attempt, Mark spent time recovering in a Hawaiian clinic where he was treated for depression. When he was finally discharged, he decided what he needed was to see more of the world. Perhaps travel would ease his pain and open up new opportunities. He embarked on a six-week trip that took him to Tokyo, 
Singapore, Paris, and London. And new destinations also led to a new relationship, as he fell in love with his travel agent, a Japanese woman named Gloria Abe. Mark proposed to Gloria during a walk on Kailua Beach, stopping to write, Will you marry me in the sand? And their wedding took place a couple of years later. But the couple's happiness was short-lived. Mark's behavior soon grew erratic. He started talking about withdrawing from society. He wanted to live life as a deaf mute. Gloria overheard him making threatening phone calls in the middle of the night. He became physically abusive and controlling, forcing his wife to leave her job after he had a falling out with her boss. Mark quit his own job too, working in the community relations department of a hospital after he was passed over for promotion. Mark had always been an obsessive individual, the way he threw himself into the 60s counterculture, and later his committed investment into his faith was clear proof of that. But while most of his obsessions had a shelf life, there were two constants in his life, the music of the Beatles and the book The Catcher in the Rye. Published in 1951 and written by J.D. Salinger, The Catcher in the Rye is a novel about angst, alienation, and the superficial nature of the modern world. Its main character, Holden Caulfield, is a depressed 17-year-old, and Holden became an icon for multiple generations of disaffected youths. Mark was no exception. Now in his mid-twenties and feeling utterly lost, the mindset of the book's protagonist had never been more relatable to him. He began to stay up late at night listening to Beatles records, long after his wife had gone to sleep. He found a new job, once again as a security guard, this time at an apartment complex. He spoke to imaginary friends, little people who lived in the walls of his house, something he'd done since childhood to curb his loneliness. One afternoon, Mark returned home with two books tucked under his arm. One was a book about J.D. Salinger. The other was a book called John Lennon, One Day at a Time. From the latter, he learned that Lennon was now living in New York, and he began talking about making a trip to the city. Mark's opinion about Lennon was complicated. He claimed that a millionaire who sang about love and peace was nothing more than a hypocrite. But he wanted to know everything about the musician, every detail, no matter how small. Mark Chapman had found a new obsession. By late October 1979, Mark's world was completely in flux. He once again quit his job. But as he clocked out for the final time, he signed out under the name John Lennon. That night, he told Gloria he was thinking about changing his name to Holden Caulfield. He listened to Lennon's music obsessively and became incensed by the song Imagine. It had been out for almost a decade at this point, but Chapman latched onto the lyrics, which theorized a world without religion. Mark thought it was blasphemy. With every listen, he got more and more angry. On October the 27th, Mark purchased a gun, a Charter Arms 38 caliber pistol. 48 hours later, he was on a plane destined for New York City, 
The day before he left, he had lunch with his mother, Diane. As they ate, he told her of his desire to change his name to Holden Caulfield. Diane was used to her son's strange moods and impulses, but even so, this alarmed her, and she shut down the conversation quickly. As Diane said goodbye to her son outside the restaurant, she lingered. She took a long look at him, this troubled man she loved. She said, You're not going to do anything funny, are you? Mark asked her what she meant. Diane replied warily, I don't know, she said. You're going to New York alone and it just seems kind of strange. Mark just hugged her and said goodbye. But a mother's intuition is rarely wrong, and Diane was right to be concerned. Mark had found his purpose. He was heading to New York to shoot John Lennon. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com But the best laid plans had not gone as Mark intended. He hadn't been able to buy bullets in New York, so had had to make an impromptu trip to Atlanta, Georgia. There he asked an old friend, Dana Reeves, now a sheriff's deputy, if he could supply him with ammunition. Dana listened to Mark explain why he needed the bullets, for protection on the treacherous streets of New York City. That made sense. So Dana, after taking Mark target shooting in the woods near his home, sent him on his way with a handful of hollow points. Once again, the plane touched down on the New York City asphalt. Mark now had everything he needed to complete his mission. He was energized, fired up. He checked into a five-star hotel. He treated himself to a boat trip and a helicopter ride. He rounded off his evening with premium seats at the movies. It was as if he was enjoying a final guilt-free night, enjoying himself before the chaos that would follow. But in that cinema, things changed. 
He watched the film Ordinary People, directed by Robert Redford. The story about a suicidal teenager struggling to cope after the death of his brother struck an unexpected chord with Chapman. He got cold feet and telephoned his wife. He told her that he loved her. And then, his voice thick, he confessed to her that he'd come to New York to kill Lennon. Gloria urged her husband to come home. She told him things would be okay. And dutifully, he got on the next flight back to Hawaii. Back in their home, Gloria sobbed as Mark explained to her that all he'd wanted was to make a name for himself and that he thought he could achieve that by shooting the former Beatle. They talked for hours, and Mark seemed to show genuine contrition. He told his wife that his love for her had overcome his desire to carry out the murder. He reassured her his mad desire had passed. Gloria, exhausted with horror and relief, believed her husband. They were through the worst of it, she thought. So she decided not to report anything her husband had told her to the authorities. After all, nothing had actually happened. A few weeks later, Mark was back on the plane to New York. This time, he wouldn't come back. In 1980, John Lennon found himself at another crossroads in his life. He and Yoko had recently purchased another New York property, a three-story Tudor-style home in Long Island, overlooking a harbor and with access to a private beach. It was a far cry from the hustle and bustle of Manhattan. Yoko spent most of her time in her office on the first floor, from which she ran Lenono Music, the couple's label. Since the birth of his son, Lennon had taken a step back from writing and recording new music. Instead, he played the part of a house husband, getting up at 6 a.m. to feed Sean, taking him for walks in the park, and even baking bread. One of the 20th century's most prominent rock stars, a man with a well-documented history of alcohol and substance abuse, had become domesticated. But as Sean's fifth birthday loomed, the creative itch took hold of Lennon once again. He started writing. And in October, a week after his 40th birthday, he released Double Fantasy, his fifth album with Yoko. He described it as not a rock album, but a record about a middle-aged man, a man who's putting his life together, one who survived. Mark Chapman lands in New York City on the morning of December 6th, a Saturday, and checks into the YMCA on 63rd Street. The room is cramped and lifeless, but for $16.50 a night, he wasn't exactly expecting the Ritz. Not wanting to linger any longer than he has to, Chapman sets down his bag and begins the 10-minute walk to the Dakota. As he walks, he spots posters for Double Fantasy. The cover is simple, a black and white photo of John and Yoko sharing a kiss. Arriving at the Dakota, Mark meets two young women standing outside the entrance and strikes up a conversation. He discovers their names are Jude Stein and Jerry Mull. And they say they know John and Yoko well, 
having kept a vigil outside the Dakota almost every day for five years. They asked Chapman if he's listened to Double Fantasy yet. He hasn't. They encourage him to buy it, telling him that if Lennon sees him with the album, he'll probably sign it. Chapman follows their advice, purchasing a copy from a record store around the corner on Columbus Avenue. He returns to the Dakota, album in hand, where he waits for hours, a chill creeping through his bones. But Lennon never shows. Tired and hungry, Mark accepts that tonight is not the night. Reluctantly, he walks away from the apartment block in search of dinner. Returning to his room a few hours later, Chapman decides that he can't stay in the YMCA. He later told a psychologist that he left because there were two gay men in the room across the hall from his. He could hear their explicit conversation through the wall and was filled with the urge to knock their door down and shoot them. Later, he also said that he wanted to be able to see the Dakota from his hotel window. Whatever the reason, the following morning, Mark packed his bags and booked into the Sheraton Hotel on the corner of West 53rd Street. The view of the Dakota came at a price, however, almost five times the cost of his YMCA room. In his new room, Chapman unpacked, carefully laying out his possessions on the desk. He started with his Bible, inscribing Holden Caulfield inside, and left it open on the Gospel according to John, which he altered to read John Lennon. There was a copy of his passport, a photo of him with refugee children from his time volunteering, and a handwritten letter from his YMCA supervisor, praising him for going above and beyond with his work. The following night, he completes the scene with a photograph of Dorothy and the Cowardly Lion from The Wizard of Oz, his favorite film. In the picture, Dorothy is wiping a tear from the lion's face. Mark stands back and examines the odd tableau he has created. Satisfied with his work, he gets dressed, wrapping up warm with thermal underwear and a fur hat and sets off once more for the Dakota. After another fruitless day of standing and waiting for John Lennon to make an appearance, Mark once again admits defeat. He visits a bookshop near the Sheraton where he buys a copy of The Catcher in the Rye, also picking up a copy of Playboy magazine, where Lennon has given his first interview in five years. He eats in the hotel before going back to his room. His solitude is interrupted by a knock on the door. On the other side is a young, blonde German woman. She's a sex worker, but she's not here for sex. Just like his literary hero, Holden Caulfield, Mark says that he doesn't want to sleep with her. He just wants company. They undress and get into bed. Mark gives her a massage. After she leaves, he phones his wife, telling her that he'll be home soon. On December the 8th, Mark arrives at the Dakota at around noon. Noticing a new security guard outside, Mark greets him, pressing him on whether he knows if Lennon will be making an appearance today. The guard gives him nothing concrete. He'd paid to be private, after all. 
It's an unusually warm day for December in Manhattan. To pass the time, Mark read from his copy of The Catcher in the Rye, losing himself in the words he almost knows off by heart, until he's suddenly interrupted from his reading by the security guard. Did you see him? He asks. Mark had been so engrossed with his book that he'd missed the musician step out of a cab and walk into the building moments earlier. But he didn't mind. There'd be other opportunities after all. And sure enough, a short while later, a Lennon did emerge from the building. Just not the one Chapman was looking for. Five-year-old Sean exited the Dakota accompanied by his nanny. They were going to take a walk. Jude and Jerry had met Lennon's son and his carer before. They introduced Mark. And Mark, getting down on one knee, shook Sean's hand before looking up at the nanny and telling her, He's such a beautiful boy. Over the course of the next few hours, a veritable who's who of New York's showbiz elite pass in and out of the Dakota. Lauren Bacall, Paul Simon, Mia Farrow. Each new figure emerging from the archway sends Mark's pulse skyrocketing, his knuckles whitening as they grip the pistol concealed in his waistband. He's on edge. Deep down, he knows that today will be the day. Inside the Dakota, John Lennon is giving what would prove to be his final interview. I consider that my work won't be finished till until I'm dead and buried, but I hope that's a long, long time. In a wide-ranging conversation, Lennon waxes lyrical on everything from fatherhood to the lost revolutionary zeal of the 60s. Earlier that day, he'd posed for famed photographer Annie Leibovitz. She'd come to his home to take his picture for the cover of Rolling Stone. Lennon insisted that Yoko to be on the cover with him, and Leibovitz suggested that the pair recreate the nude cover of Two Virgins, their first album. Lennon is game, but Yoko doesn't want to pose naked, choosing to keep her black jumper and blue jeans on. The final pose sees Lennon nude, clinging to a clothed Yoko like a baby. Leibovitz snaps a Polaroid and shows the couple. Lennon looks at it and says, You captured our relationship perfectly. At 4pm, the couple left the Dakota, heading to the studio to work on a track together. As Lennon approaches the idling limo, Mark Chapman steps forward, gripping the album he'd bought just a day or two previously. As promised, John Lennon's eyes are drawn to his latest work, a sense of pride that a fan is there, wanting it to be signed, and he duly obliges. The pair exchange brief pleasantries before parting. When they arrive at the studio, John and Yoko learn that Double Fantasy has gone gold, selling 500,000 copies. Lennon breathes a sigh of relief. He had had weeks of sleepless nights about the album's success worrying that it wouldn't connect with the mainstream audience. Buoyed by the news, John and Yoko spend the next few hours working on Yoko's track, Walking on Thin Ice. When they wrap up at 10.30pm, Lennon tells her, I think you just cut your first number one. The pair climb back into their car and set off for home. At 10.50pm, a black limousine pulls up outside the Dakota. Mark 
stands to attention, his fingers tightening around the gun in his pocket. The door opens and out steps Yoko. The couple had made plans to have dinner at the stage deli on 7th Avenue, but they wanted to come home first to say goodnight to Sean. Chapman nods at Yoko as she walks past. She makes her way towards the entrance with John lagging behind. As he walks past Chapman, he glances briefly in his direction, perhaps recognizing him from earlier. Mark looks up. He pulls the 38 out of his pocket, points the gun at his target, the very center of his obsession. He squeezes the trigger five times and cracks ring out in the taut winter air. The bullets pierce Lennon's shoulder and back. He stumbles forward onto the front step of the Dakota. The words, I'm shot, spill out of his mouth before he collapses inside the guardhouse. The internal ring of the gunfire in Chapman's ears is soon accompanied by Yoko's screams. Help him! He's been shot! Somebody come quickly! The Dakota's doorman, Jose Perdomo, ran at Chapman, grabbing his arm and wrestling the pistol out of his grip. Chapman didn't put up any kind of fight. He'd done what he'd come to do. The gun clattered to the ground and Perdomo kicked it out of reach. Do you know what you've done? He screamed, blinking tears out of his eyes. Chapman replied, I've just shot John Lennon. Then he took out his copy of The Catcher in the Rye, sat down on the pavement and began to read. Just two minutes later, NYPD officer Peter Cullen and his partner, Steve Spiro, arrived at the scene. The weapons were already drawn as they pulled up. Jose, the security guard, gestured towards a heavyset man in an overcoat, his face buried in a paperback. He shot John Lennon, he yelled. Cullen was aghast. For his first assignment as a rookie cop, he'd been placed on the Beatles' security detail during their 1965 trip to New York. Now, 15 years later, here was Lennon, lying face down, blood trickling down the corners of his mouth. There was a macabre sense of symmetry to it all. Jay Hastings, a porter at the Dakota, knelt down at Lennon's side and removed his famous glasses. He wanted to apply a tourniquet to Lennon's wounds. But after removing his shirt and taking in the extent of his injuries, instead, he simply covered John with his coat. Two of the bullets had entered his back, piercing the left lung before exiting through the front of his body. Two more had struck his left shoulder, one hitting his left arm, the other passing through his left lung before lodging in his neck. A fifth shot had missed its target, smashing through one of the Dakota's windows. Lennon was losing blood fast. While Cullen took in the bloody scene, Steve Spiro has his gun trained on Chapman. Don't hurt me, begged Chapman. I'm unarmed. Please don't let anyone hurt me. Spiro faced Chapman against the wall of the building and searched him. The assassin kept apologizing over and over, saying he was sorry for giving them any trouble. By now, backup had arrived. 
and it was decided that there was no time to wait for an ambulance. Given the severity of Lennon's injuries, every second counted. He was carefully placed into the back seat of their squad car. They raced off into the night, sirens blazing in the direction of Roosevelt Hospital. Back outside the Dakota, Cullen and Spiro are marching Chapman towards their car when he suddenly cried out, My book! Chapman's copy of The Catcher in the Rye had fallen to the pavement during his arrest. Cullen picked it up and handed it to him before putting him in the back of the car. They drive him to the station for processing. In an operating theater at the Roosevelt, Lennon arrived with no blood pressure and no pulse. As doctors tended to him, making an incision into the left side of his chest and gently squeezing his heart to try and restore blood flow, All My Loving by the Beatles begins to play over the hospital's sound system. A nurse, recognizing the singer, calls him by his name. One of the physicians gasps, No, it's not. It can't be. At 11.15 p.m., just 25 minutes after the shooting, John Lennon is pronounced dead. News of his passing is first announced during Monday Night Football on ABC. They had gotten wind of Lennon's death after a producer, who had been in the emergency room of the hospital, waiting to be treated for injuries from a motorcycle crash, had seen the police bring the singer in. Mark Chapman was charged with second-degree murder. In the weeks and months after the shooting, he's assessed by dozens of psychologists and psychiatrists. They concluded that he was delusional, but competent to stand trial. Against the advice of his attorneys, he pleads guilty, claiming he'd been instructed to kill the musician by God. He was sentenced to 25 years to life. Chapman, now 67, is currently being held in Wendy Correctional Facility near Buffalo, New York, where his 12th parole hearing took place in August 2022. For the first five years after the killing of Lennon, the only public statement he made was a letter to the New York Times in which he encouraged the public to read The Catcher in the Rye, writing that the explanation for the shooting could be found within its pages. In more recent years, Chapman has admitted that Lennon's murder was a bid for notoriety. I have no excuse. I didn't kill him because of his character or the kind of man he was. This was for self-glory. Lennon's murder was met with a public outpouring of grief. Hours after his death, hundreds of mourners gathered outside the Dakota, where together they sang his songs. Yoko announced that there would be no funeral, issuing a statement saying, John loved and prayed for the human race. Please do the same for him. Lennon was cremated, his ashes scattered in Central Park. On December 14th, a silent vigil is held honoring the musician. Crowds gather all around the world to participate. In his hometown of Liverpool, 30,000 people came together to remember Lennon. 
Though the vigil in Central Park, which attracted almost 100,000 grieving fans, is by far the largest. At 2 p.m. in New York and 7 p.m. in Liverpool, the crowds go silent. Some pray, others meditate. And for 10 minutes, the only sound came from the whirring blades of the police helicopters flying overhead. One man held up a white sign with a photo of Lenin, flanked by peace symbols. The caption, written in bold black letters, simply read, Why? Crosshairs is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Jonathan Guy-Lewis. Our music is supplied by KPM. Sound design by Tom Bruins. And this episode was written and produced by Jack O'Kennedy. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please give it a rating and review. There's a new episode of Crosshairs every week. And if you can't wait for that, why not check out more What's the Story content? at www.whatsthestorysounds.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.